Sorry to not give you very long, but I hope that's um, been helpful. Um, it's great because then you think, I don't have to come up with the, the def definitive answer on that because your table had to have it covered, I'm afraid. Um, so if you've um, thought about um, sort of the type of example Jesus is, I think it's really important to focus most on um, what actually Jesus is an example of. Um, and in our passage, if we go back to that, Ellie read from the NIV. Um, my quotes are actually the NRSV, but it's just another translation. I haven't like just made it up. Um, so um, in verse 21, um, it said, For this um, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. And so all of Jesus' life is an example to us, and that's um, really important. But today we're going to focus in on what Peter is actually talking about here, which is the suffering of Jesus, and particularly the passion, the cross, and, and what the cross means um, for Jesus as our example. And Peter repeats this theme throughout the whole of the letter of 1 Peter. Um, so you'd find in chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same intention. And um, later in verse 12 of that chapter, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. Just as it's true um, that we share in Christ's victory, um, which is what you were thinking about last week, um, his, we share in his resurrection life living within us. We also share in his death. We share in his suffering. Actually, Paul talks about the fact that we carry around the death of Christ in our bodies. Um, and the strength of that image and, and the kind of consistency of that theme within the New Testament makes it, I think, one of the greatest tragedies of contemporary Christianity. Um, when Christians suffer and they think, oh, is this turned off? No? Um, is it off? It might be. I'm quite loud. I suddenly realised I couldn't hear any annoying echo. And so I was like... Is the light gone off? Sorry, Bill, but he told us how to deal with this, and I just forgot. I think you just have to turn the on button again. Sorry. Thanks. Um, yes. So as I was saying, you know, it isn't, um, perhaps it isn't surprising, but it's extremely sad that when Christians suffer, you hear them saying things like, what on earth is going on? You know, this wasn't supposed to happen. Um, God must have abandoned me, or I must have done something wrong. Or some of them thinking, do you know, actually, perhaps none of it was true in the first place. I was never told about this. And when we suffer, obviously it's natural um, that we're going to struggle, we're going to ask questions, we're going to wrestle with God. Um, but actually, um, although we can't pretend that the Bible gives us easy answers to the question of suffering, we need to be clear that the Bible does give us an example. And it does very clearly say, as in our passage, you are sharing Christ's sufferings. Or as one of my favourite quotes has it, the other gods were strong but you were weak. They rode, but you stumbled to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but you alone. And I want to look at some of the ways that Jesus' example specifically shapes us. Firstly, he's an example in non-retaliation. And this is something that deeply affected the work of um, Martin Luther King Jr. and also um, the life of Nelson Mandela. In, in our passage, verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Um, In one of the office jobs that my husband Sam had, there was this really toxic culture of basically being totally two-faced, undermining people behind their backs. He quickly realised this was going on behind his back as well, as you do. Um, You know, colleagues pointing out mistakes to management, trying to assign blame and basically protect their own backs. You can't trust anybody in a culture like that. Um, He certainly couldn't trust his job share that was in half the week with him. And things got very messy pretty quickly. And in this environment, um, the sensible thing to do, the wise thing to do, is to play the game, isn't it? It's only fair, in a way. You know, they're pointing out all your mistakes um, very um, subtly to your manager. And so, you, you know, if something goes on, you just make sure that your manager knows that you're also picking up a lot of slack for them. And um, you just, rather than in a normal workplace where perhaps you just you deal with it or you go to the person directly, you, you quickly learn those subtle ways to manipulate um, all the environment to your advantage. And and to be honest, that's what I wanted him to do. I would have loved if he'd have played the game. Um, But he refused to. He refused to retaliate. And I want to say that was was a wonderful thing because everyone in that workplace realised that he was a Christian and there was revival, or God blessed him for that um, by bringing him loads of promotions. In fact, he got um, bad appraisal after bad appraisal and eventually his contract was shortened and he had to leave that workplace. But our passage says in verse 19, it is a credit to you if being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. Or in the ESV translation, if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And um, the observant among you, or perhaps you've looked at this in your cell groups, um, might have noticed that the example of the workplace is quite deliberately chosen. And because Peter is speaking into a workplace environment in this passage, he's talking to slaves and masters. Um, And I don't have time to go into a full discussion of what that means in the New Testament. Um, But actually, I don't want to brush it aside, because when we read the New Testament, it refers to slaves and masters. Quite rightly, we freak out. Um, And we think automatically when we hear of the word slavery, of chattel slavery, um, which was hideously depicted in the film um, 12 Years a Slave, which I watched recently. Um, But the slavery um, Peter is addressing in the Roman world was actually very different from this. And and if this is something that bothers you, I think I would encourage you to look into it and not just ignore it. Um, Tim Keller's The Reason for God is a good place to start. Um, But briefly, we can note that slaves in the Roman world were not slaves for life in the same way that they were under um, American slavery. Um, Often they were released between 10 to 15 years, um, and they did receive wages. Over time, they could accrue enough to buy their own freedom. And they were generally not segregated from the rest of society, as as we think about um, in American slavery. Um, And so someone like the head of your household might have also technically been your slave. Um, And I think that's important to note. Um, We need to note that the picture of human dignity presented throughout the Old and New Testament is not in any way um, compatible with chattel slavery. And in fact, anti-slavery sentiment began to appear even in early Christian writing shortly after the fall of Rome, even with this very different form of slavery. Um, And that leads me on to my next point, but I guess it was because of this. It's because Jesus is our example in siding with the powerless. 
Whilst Jesus could have called down legions of angels to protect himself when he was arrested, when he suffered, he didn't threaten. He didn't use his power to protect himself. In John 19, um, there has an account of him in front of Pilate. And Pilate's getting really frustrated. He says, you know, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Rather than using his power to protect himself, Jesus deliberately laid aside his power. He laid down his life. And he did that alongside the powerless. He was publicly humiliated and nailed in between two criminals. Um, And as Mike Lloyd has said in Cafe Theology, this means that the cross presents a challenge to the world's way of looking at things. If we are to let the cross shape our way of seeing, we may look dismissively upon no human person at all, however lowly, however shamed. We like to be with attractive people, intelligent people, witty people, important people, entertaining people, influential people, those who don't require time and effort to get to know. And that's why we name drop our connections. And that's why our society is so obsessed with celebrities. God, however, is not impressed by such meaningless criteria. He likes to be with hurt people, despised people, ignored people, sinful people, crushed people real people. At the cross we see Jesus siding with the powerless, creatively and willingly giving up his own power and we're called to do the same as we let the cross shape our way of seeing others and our relationships with them. And in the same way as it shapes our relationship, um, Jesus on the cross is an example to us in forgiveness. It seems to me that in films, um, at the point when a character is most um, pressed, when they're backed into a corner, they're suffering the most profoundly. That is the point at which you really see who they really are. That's when their character is truly revealed. And that is the point at the Gospels that we have Jesus on the cross, when he's suffering an agony of body and mind and soul torment. That is the moment when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we find that we can't stand at the foot of the cross and remain unchanged. We can't stand there receiving that forgiveness that Jesus won for us and still want to hold every single bitterness close to us, every single offence done against us tight. Um, We don't want to anymore always withhold the forgiveness on which our lives are now founded. We see the power of forgiveness at the cross. It breaks the cycle of violence by absorbing that violence into itself. Um, He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he was suffered, he did not threaten. Um, Yes, He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Um, I don't know, it might run out. Can you still hear me? Well, I might just... Oh, this is very exciting. Um, Well, you can read it, in fact, in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Do you want me to carry on without? Or if anyone's on the hearing loop, I just feel bad. Oh, Jazzy, thanks. Um, And part of... uh, Sorry. You can use this one if it turns off okay, again. Thanks. 
because I'll definitely have more luck with that one. <laughs> um, but part of that healing that Jesus offers us is to grow into forgiving people. And, and what I mean by that is people who actually are increasingly naturally able to forgive those small hurts, um, those wrongs, the kind of the slights and the, the careless, thoughtless things that people do to us um, just day by day, all the time. So when someone leaves all their stuff in the shared living space, um, when someone pushes in front of us in the queue or cuts us up in a car, um, when someone forgets our name or says something actually quite kind of undeliberately, but they say something quite unkind, um, a life of unforgiveness, if we hold on to all those things, just clogs us up with a sense that we're not getting what we're owed. It clogs us up with a general frustration to almost everybody around us. Um, and we need forgiveness to be flowing in our relationships if life is actually going to work. And we definitely need forgiveness to be flowing in the church if we're going to manage to get through more than about a month together. Um, but following Jesus' example at the cross also means moving towards forgiveness in the bigger things. Stuff that really hurt. Um, things that still hurt. And, um, and things that we actually... I'll just hold it down. Is that? I think it's. I think it's just sad. Okay. Sorry about this, guys. Does that work? Does that work? I'm really sorry. I should just learn to talk louder. Okay, are we okay again? I'm very sorry about this. You'll have to forgive me. You can learn to forgive me. Um, but actually, you know, it's not just about the little things. It's also about the bigger things. Um, those things, I think, you know when you need to forgive someone, when you can't see them without thinking about that thing. And um, Forgiveness has rightly been called um, by Stephen Cherry, healing agony. For all of us, forgiveness is a kind of death. Um, and the cross shows us how wrong we can be about forgiveness. You know, forgiveness is not about saying that it didn't matter, um, about just brushing it under the carpet. To, to say that forgiveness is needed at all says that wrong was done. Jesus does not minimise forgiveness. At the cross, we see how costly forgiveness must be and yet how necessary it is. Um, many Christians have also found in Jesus' example the ability, the grace, the strength, um, to forgive those who've sinned against them in ways that I can barely imagine, those who really have um, suffered at others' hands in terrible ways, they see something in Jesus' forgiveness. I guess they see the scale of it, that it's so all-encompassing, that, it, that somehow that is bigger than what they've been through. But it, it seems very true that not just for Jesus, but for all of us, to forgive is, it, is to die, really. Um, and Jesus is our, also our example in dying to ourselves. Um, Jesus himself said that if um, anyone wants to follow him, they must take up their cross as well. In Matthew 16, if any of you wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. At the cross, um, we see Jesus denying himself even to death. I was really removed um, out of the, the whole account when I read about Gethsemane the day before Jesus was actually killed, him wrestling in prayer with the Father. If it's possible, 
Let this cup pass from me. Yet, not what I want, but what you want. And then again, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. The cross shows us, I think, most truly what dying to ourselves means. To want God's will to be done more than my own comfort, um, my own reputation, the um, approval or even understanding of my friends and family. Um, To want God's will more than even my own life. Perhaps um, when Peter wrote this letter, he was thinking of um, the fact that when Jesus was taken away to death, Peter ran away to save his own skin. He denied that he had ever known Jesus. Um, But actually, um, when Peter's own time came again, he refused to disown Jesus, and he was martyred for his faith. We think that probably he was um, crucified in Rome. And for many Christians today, following Jesus' example in dying to themselves um, means this as well. Um, Professor Thomas Schiermacher from the International Society for Human Rights estimates that around 8,000 people, Christians, um, were killed for their faith specifically in 2013. 8,000 people around the world. Um, And in this country, owning the label Christian, I think automatically means that you're signed up to a whole load of labels in people's heads that you would never want to be associated with. You know, narrow-minded, science-hated, irrational, bigoted, judgmental. Um, And it's important that we're not judgmental and bigoted. Um, Otherwise, as Peter says, you know, what credit is is it to you if you suffer for doing wrong? Um, But often, actually, we have to accept that whatever we do and however we act, um, people's opinions of us are going to be affected by knowing that we're Christians. And we need to not focus all our attention in trying to opinion manage rather than just get on with living for God. Um, dying to ourselves means um, dying to all that is fallen, all that's self, selfish, um, the things that are life-denying and Jesus-denying within us. Dying to ourselves does not mean self-rejection or self-hatred. Um, and that picks up um, very clearly on what Holly was talking about, about purif- purifying ourselves. Because at the cross, we are shown our fallenness. Um, we're shown that ugliness of our false self who so often we actually put on the throne in our lives rather than nailing to the cross with Jesus. Um, But we're also shown our great worth at the cross. Um, We're shown um, that God was willing to die for us. Um, And Jesus says that when we die to ourselves, um, we find ourselves actually. And that's the me that I want to find. The me that God created me to be in his image is the truest person that I am. So don't add a false layer of kind of guilt and confusion to what is a beautiful calling, but it's also an extremely difficult calling to want God's will um, more than my own will um, and to deny not just those desires that are sinful, but actually sometimes when it is God's will to deny um, ourselves things that are good and legitimate, but which we can't have fulfilled at the same time as fulfilling God's calling for us in our life at that time. Um, That's accepting the hardships on our path and that God has put before us that actually um, we often don't even understand. Sometimes we're called to careers which are going to give us none of the financial security that we had hoped that we would have had and perhaps that our family expect us to have. Sometimes we're called to a life of celibacy as Jesus was and um, to fulfil our ministry. Um, sometimes we're called to the area of the country, inner cities, outer estates that Kirsty and Phil would want us to have nothing to do with. Um, And sometimes denying ourselves actually means something much more boring. Um, Amy Carmichael said this, 
If by doing some work which the undiscerning consider not spiritual work, I can best help others, and I inwardly rebel, thinking it's the spiritual for which I crave, when in truth it is the interesting and the exciting, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Perhaps, you know, we feel that we could really rise to those glamorous sacrifices that Christians are at, speaking at conferences are called to. But the, the sacrifice that God is calling us to make is really dull. Um, but actually, God is most pleased when we accept his will for us. And that brings me finally to suffering. Jesus is our example in suffering. And really everything um, that I've said could fit under that head- heading. Um, But I want to talk specifically about how Jesus is our example in suffering, in his trust and in his abandonment. Um, Despite the agony of the cross um, and the death that looked like the end, Good Friday and Holy Saturday were followed by Easter Sunday. But for us, we know the end from the beginning. And we love to rush through, particularly um, Holy Saturday, a day of death when nothing's happening lying cold in the tomb. We want to rush to resurrection. Um, But Jesus couldn't, and he trusted on the cross. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Or as Peter encourages us, therefore let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. And probably the most profound part of Jesus' suffering um, on the cross was his sense of abandonment by God. We hear the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? You know, so often when we suffer, we think that we could put up with it, actually, if God felt really close to us. If we were sure that it was part of some really fabulous, bigger plan at that moment, then it would be okay. And sometimes that is the case. Um, In dark times, God comes alongside us in peace, but often it's not the case. Like Jesus, we have no clue where God is and and what's happening. And Kester Bruin talks about this in his book, um, drawing on the traditional Christian theme of the dark night of the soul. And I'd like to um, share with you at length um, some of what he said. Um, He says, We will all face the darkness at some point. And we need to see the great tradition of growth in the dark to which we belong. Paul was blinded, Jesus abandoned in the dark, and we will join them. But as we do, we must beware the voices that will try to scare us, tell us to move on and demand that lights are lit. Those who have been through dark nights will know this temptation to chase the darkness with artificial light. And one of the things we must be aware of with technology is the temptation to use it in this way. Backlit computer screens and 42-inch plasma TV screens are the ever-on lanterns that promise us escape from whatever darkness, loneliness or abandonment we feel. These are not promises they can keep. Job's darkness and the experience of Paul and others can seem like a short burst of intense blinding. The suffering is great, but may not last very long. Yet this is not always the case. The traditional view of the dark night of the soul being a time of immense suffering is not always correct. The darkness is not so much an oppression of evil, but more a hiding, an obscuring of God and of meaning. In this sense, the dark night of the soul is a much more mundane experience. We may not feel totally blind, nor do we feel any sense of light either. We wander through an extended dusk driving to the shopping centre, cleaning the bathroom, heating a ready meal, 
again and again, going through the daily humdrum of life with nothing happening at all, wondering where the hell God could be in all of this. This has very much been my own personal experience through the last few years. God, in many ways, became obscured, hidden. And what I find helpful in Richard Rohr's work, which is what he was talking about, is that it was precisely in this ordinary, boring, mundane time that God was doing hidden work. Why should God work in the dark? Because, Rohr says, if we could see what God was doing, we would either run a mile from it or get our hands all over it and mess it up. In these moments, we have a choice. Either we enter the desert and wait, trusting that out of it will come learning and maturing, or we continue to pedal harder, trying desperately to chase the night away. I spoke to some older Christian friends in preparation for this talk, and um, they're about 70, and they're a real inspiration to me in their perseverance and their joy, despite the fact that if I look at their life, um, there's things that are just very strange, stuff that God seemed to call them to, and then that fell apart. Um, and I asked them what I could share with you um, about their life story. And they said, say this. Say that plans don't always work out the way you envisage it. And sometimes we feel we have failed. Or we're left puzzled and perplexed as to why this or that didn't happen. Perhaps we'll never understand why until eternity. But we can count on the Lord's faithfulness. And throughout the painful periods, we do experience a joy as we move on with God inviting him to fill us anew with love for himself despite those disappointments and leaving the area in his safe care and trusting him for the now. As Peter said in chapter 4, let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you in due time. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.